Hey, good day, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. Uh, it's that time where we get to touch base with our good friend Justin Heun from the Uranium Insider Newsletter. Justin, it's been a while. Welcome back to the pod. It has been a while. Hey, great to be back. Always, always yeah. good to talk with you, Trevor. Yeah, it's, it's always fun, especially like I, I enjoy how we kind of space out these interviews. We, we usually try to touch base once a month. I think it's been a little bit longer than that um, just because, you know, it's summer, things happen. But uh, uh, let's kind of cut into this. Uh, I, I want to ask you about these summer doldrums and how it pertains to the uranium market uh, because typically the uranium market is pretty quiet in the summer, if not selling off. But we typically – it's been pretty – pretty resilient this summer thus far it has been yeah it's kind of been bucking that seasonality trend that happens most years um it definitely last year obviously was a weird year as well um you know where when it was seasonally supposed to be strong it was actually weak which was kind of december through march turned around in the summer after uh they cameco shut down cigar lake and started buying uranium and um so yeah we're we're sort of seeing some resiliency that I think is really kind of based on the market uh, preparing for Sprott to take over UPC. That's kind of what I'm what I'm sensing is going on right now. And you know, those often those things are kind of like buy the rumor, sell the news. And so we saw the market really rally when when Sprott announced they would be taking over management of UPC. And I think now that the market is recognizing that it's a few months off. Any anything that can kind of come in and and act as a as a as a pin to burst that to burst that balloon is causing retail to sell off a bit or at least take you know precautionary profit. Um, so yeah, that's that's what it seems like is happening right now. But uh, everything is still fundamentally extremely strong for your hand. Yeah, that uh, Sprout UPC news continues to like it was huge news just a couple months ago, uh, but you don't see any any concerns or anything red flags uh, uh, thus far through. You know, it's not closed yet, but you know, it seems all hands on deck, ready to go. Yeah, it sure seems like that. Um, we don't have any reason to believe that it's going to fall through. Um, Sprout actually just announced last week that kind of confirming that the deal is still set to be completed in Q3, <clears throat> which technically begins in a couple of weeks, but it's probably going to be towards the end of Q3. And it could be a bit longer after the deal is officially sealed for them to get their New York Stock Exchange listing and their ATM financing vehicle. But I don't think they're going to waste a lot of time. And really what I think is happening between now and then and has been happening since December is a positioning of institutions um, in expectation of hedge funds buying uranium, and in this case, also uh, Sprott taking over UPC, which is going to be a, a really efficient and highly liquid means for institutions to come into the uranium market and position themselves in a very safe vehicle that's tied to the commodity, where it also very directly affects the purchasing and the driving up in price of that commodity. So it's an exciting development that's just around the corner, and in the meantime, we have, um, you know, kind of a market that seems like it's selling off a bit. Uh, maybe it's going along with the other, um, a lot of other commodities that kind of been hit the past few weeks and sort of coming off of really uh, strong moves over the past six months. See gold and silver kind of start to go go down a bit this past week, and it seems like uh, uranium kind of got lumped in with all of that. In addition, there was a, a story that came out of China about a week ago 
that the Taishan nuclear power plant, which is a French design, uh, had reported that there were increased levels of a particular gas that is basically indicative of uh, a leak in a fuel rod. And this, you know, sounds really scary and the market reacted really quickly and kind of panic sold, uh, at least retail did. But it's really a routine thing from what we understand. And from the information that's available now, it doesn't seem like there's any concern whatsoever. And it's a routine happening for these fuel rods to have small leaks. And, you know, there's there's practices in place to make sure that this doesn't turn into a dangerous situation. Of course, we're watching it, keeping an eye on it. But we sent a bulletin out to our newsletter members within a couple of hours of that news hitting, just letting them know where they can find more information and high quality information on what actually was happening there. And in our opinion, it was a buy the dip situation and continues to be so. Yeah, it's an important point there. I mean, it was a kind of a fake out of a news story there. But did did you think about just how, I don't know if the word fragile is good to, appropriate word to use when it comes to the retail investor being willing to dump shares based on just kind of a, a more of a fear of anything? Yeah, it's it definitely made me think about that for sure. Um, I also think that we had pretty overbought conditions across the sector. So I think that this was just kind of, I think it had, it was ready for a bit of a sell-off and a correction and kind of a, a reset before another good move. And that just happened to be the excuse for it. But judging by the volume, I mean, that day that news came out was the all-time daily volume for the URA ETF. And so my interpretation of that is retail panic selling and institutions buying. And that's the only way you're really going to see that record type of volume into a highly liquid vehicle like that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's go back next week. I mean, because obviously, on top of that news out of China, not so much news. Uh, we obviously had a lot of volatility in the commodities uh, sector as a whole uh, following the Fed. Uh, you know, if you're looking at the metals or even the precious metals, obviously, there was quite a bit of loss happening that week or last week. Uh, but uh, Justin, the uranium market seemed fairly resilient in comparison to the rest of the metals market. I was wondering if you could maybe give us your thoughts on why it kind of was able to bear such a brunt. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I agree with you. And, and I think that we found ourselves in a situation where the, the thesis for nuclear energy is stronger than ever and, and more accepted than I've ever seen. Uh, it's it's growing in popularity and support <clears throat> across the entire political spectrum and in, in various countries around the world. And I think that that's kind of underpinning, um, you know, the case for uranium as well and the investment case, which is also being picked up by more prominent players in the space. We actually heard uh, Chamath Palapatia mention it the other day. Um, we've seen Hugh Hendry and Larry McDonald and a number of prominent investors that are noticing this trend and i think that that's again with the with the just around the corner expectation of sprott coming in and about to just you know i mean th these are bloodthirsty financial players that are now cornering the uranium market and it's kind of this calm before the storm sort of period so i think that people have also seen how quickly this market can move in both directions but potentially to the upside as well it just it can get away from you so quickly that in order to sell out here, okay, yeah, you might book some gains and maybe you can buy back a bit lower, but who knows what's going to set it on its next tear and when, how soon that will come. And 
our strategy from the beginning has been to accumulate on weakness and hold until we have clear signs of a of a of a nearing a market peak or overwhelming positive sentiment combined with much much higher uranium prices and we think that's years away so we don't really trade around this market and i think that's generally the 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 sentiment amongst most investors it's so volatile that trading around it you have to be extremely quick on your toes not only to mention not also to mention you know dealing with taxes of, of taking profits and hoping to buy back lower to to cover those tax uh, implications yeah. They're, they're definitely the celebrity celebrity um, uh, you know flag waving is certainly gaining you know by one person on top of another here slowly uh, you know I did listen to that interview well, it wasn't an interview it was the that podcast the all in podcast with Chamath when he when he did mention uh, his bull case for uranium energy but before that uh, his friend and colleague David Sask, Sasks uh, did also provide his thoughts on uranium saying the nimbyism behind building any sort of uranium power facility will is a is a game like it's a it's a it's a game stopper mm. for nuclear and you know so it was interesting to get you know two friends two colleagues and different opinions well maybe it's not opinions one saying it will never happen because people don't want it in their backyard or to see it and the other one says the reasons for developing nuclear power are just incredibly uh, beneficial for the as a risk reward. Right. Um, you know, we, we, you're based out in California. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on: Are we getting more potentially more acceptance? And I'm not talking you can not you know p- companies or governments willing to spend money on it, but more willingness to potentially build large scale nuclear energy projects for uh, communities and districts. I, I personally don't have a lot of hope for the United States for building large nuclear power plants, additional large nuclear power plants, primarily because we're already seeing what that looks like currently with the Vodal plant that's still under construction after, what is it, 10, 15 years and, and tens of billions of dollars in cost. I mean, projects in the States typically of that size and capacity involve um in, in, involve unions and very, very high wage, high wage expenses, um, a lot of regulations, which obviously are important for nuclear, but it's it makes much more sense in countries that support um, that type of that type of construction project to happen in a timely manner. And you know, obviously, that's you know China and Russia, and there's dozens of other countries around the world that are building plants that seem like they have less of a of regulatory hurdles to jump through. So. I think I think the sentiment that you mentioned on the on the all in podcast, both sides of that are true. Um, it just depends on where. So, but what we're seeing in the states, actually, conversely to my doubts about building large new nuclear plants, is we're seeing a much more accelerated timeline for small modular reactors. When these first started being prominent in the news with these small reactors in this quote unquote advanced nuclear, we're talking about much smaller reactors that are using higher, more highly enriched uranium um, to produce very efficient energy for very long time without fuel reloads. Um, the, the one that uh, Bill Gates and TerraPower uh, with the support from uh, Warren Buffett, Pacific Corp and the state of Wyoming, the governor of Wyoming, they're talking about building uh, the TerraPower Natrium 345 megawatt small modular reactor at a former coal plant site. 
that can just plug mm. right into an existing grid that was connected, that is connected to uh, this form of coal plant. And this is a really, really cool small reactor. So it has, um, it has this molten salt, excuse me, molten salt backup uh, thermal energy storage. Uh, it's basically storing excess heat in molten salt. And so while it runs at 345 megawatts, it can boost up to 500 megawatts for up to five hours by pulling the heat from that molten salt into the, into the reactor core, essentially, and, and you, know, you know, essentially boiling water, creating steam, turning the turbines as the regular reactor functions. So it can flex up and down, which is an important aspect for, uh, for power, especially when we're electrifying more and more uh, things in our daily life, our, our cars, our stoves, our heat. Uh, this country and many countries seem to be moving in that direction. So the timeline for this now, for this new uh, SMR in Wyoming, they're going to be applying for construction permits in 2023 with an operating license uh, application from March 2026. So we're talking about less than five years before this thing could potentially be operating in the United States. It's very exciting. It's a, it's a big, big shift, and uh, it's super cool to see happening. Yeah, that's really interesting. It made me think. So I've been doing some just reading on my own in the background. I'm, I, I'm, I've been very unfamiliar with how venture capital works. And so I've been just kind of reading and doing some studying and trying to get a better understanding of that. And I've actually in the middle of uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, he was founder of PayPal. And he wrote in this book about how really PayPal was an added tool to an e-commerce page like eBay that just helped them do transactions much easier. And, you know, they, 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 they created something simple and easy to better somebody else's business. Uh, they weren't creating something massive and, you know, completely disruptive because that would take a ton of risk. So they took the risk out of it, right. By just adding an extension. And it's almost like that same, what you just said, it's that, it's that same type of idea of like, how can nuclear energy and uh, the uranium market not create something massive and, and brand new that's completely disruptive, but how can it let create something simple, less complex, de-risk that already builds onto an infrastructure we already have? Yeah, it's, I, I think that the SMR uh, movement really fits that bill because they they're much more visually um, unobtrusive than, than the traditional, you know, gigantic cooling stacks that people associate with the Simpsons mm. and nuclear meltdown, <laughs> and, you know, fish with three eyes swimming in the river around the, around the power plant and things like that. Um, so they're, they're, they're smaller, they're cheaper. That's another one of the big oppositions of nuclear. They're so expensive. You know, why are we going to spend 20, $30 billion building this and we can just throw up a nat gas plant? You know, for a fraction of the cost and much, much faster. Um, and the also the you know the initial costs of of solar and wind are also substantially less, especially solar compared to uh, when it comes to per megawatt um, compared to a traditional nuclear power plant. Of course, they run for a very, very long time with much lower cost and, and as base load. But I think that the that the SMR situation really could fit that bill. And I, I saw uh, somebody shared something this morning a story out of uh, Germany that basically is predicting or, or, or essentially estimating that since Germany shut down half, more than half their nuclear reactors after Fukushima, they're estimating that there are up to a thousand, thousand lives have been lost from air pollution per year. 
since since they closed those down. So these sort of stories are continuing to circulate, and I think more and more people are recognizing that nuclear is actually clean, and especially when we can address the major issues that most people have with it, which is uh, the build time, the cost, the waste. You know, the SMRs do a lot to address the waste as well. There's much less waste, and they're essentially meltdown proof. You know, they're they're scared of the safety, even though it is the safest form of energy ever conceived. It's still, you know, people have fears from Chernobyl uh, and things like that that can't ever happen in the same way again because there aren't that type of reactor without containment that exists currently. Uh, so yeah, it's it's slowly but surely shifting positive for nuclear, which obviously is bodes very well for the investment in the underlying commodity uranium. Yeah. Uh, let's turn it over to the equities here, Justin, real quick, and just kind of any stories on the exploration side or the actual production side that uh, has been newsworthy in the last couple of weeks that uh, you maybe would ask uh, investors and speculators to take a look at. It's been mostly quiet on the equities front. There's been a couple of developments. Um, there's a company. So uh, the deal, UEX did a deal to buy JCU, which um, owns 10% of uh, Wheeler River, Denison's project. And right after they announced they were purchasing, um, <laughs> going through this deal, Denison swooped in with an offer that I think was three times the price. Um, that went on for a couple of months and it just came out that that deal was split. So we're seeing a bit of split, split between UEX and DNN and uh, Denison. And so we're seeing some M&A activity on that front. We are seeing, let's see, there's a company, Forum Energy Metals. They're continuing to drill on this Janus Lake project. That's more of a copper project, but Forum also has some uranium projects going. Uh, Appia Energy is uh, setting up to drill in Alsis Lake. That's a, again, that's a, a uranium and rare earth company, and that's mainly a uh, rare earth project. Let's see, exploration front, development front, there's a company, Global Atomic, in Niger that's forging ahead, staffing up, getting permits. They look like they're on a pretty aggressive timeline to get their DASA uranium project up and running. Um, but besides that, it's been pretty quiet. Most of the Athabasca plays are winter drill programs. And we had a really, really short and warm winter. So a lot of the projects, uh, the drill programs for Athabasca explorers got cut short if they happened at all. So we're expecting the summer drilling to, to happen for the projects where that can happen. And then, uh, you know, as we hopefully see COVID dying down and, and hopefully a more robust winter next year, plus I expect a much higher uranium price. I'm, I'm shooting for 40 to $45 by the end of the year spot uranium. And if we see that and we see a good winter, we're going to see a lot of exploration next winter. So that should be exciting. All right, Justin, uh, we'll uh, be sure to catch up with you later. <laughs> well, each, hopefully each and every month up into the winter as the spot price continues to rise, we hope, fingers crossed. Uh, but we appreciate your time. And well, I, I really do uh, uh, enjoy these conversations and getting the rundown of the uranium market with you. Yeah, same here. Thanks again for having me, Trevor. Anytime. Yeah, uh, that's Justin Hewn. Uh, folks, if you are at all interested in the uranium mining sector his newsletter uranium insider is a must it's really 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 good all right everybody uh that's it for this episode we'll be back here and momentarily with some more updates stay tuned the information presented should not be considered investment advice mining stock daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein 
please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.